Wow. I don't exactly know where that came from, but I like it. Walk-up music. I would have been much more dramatic had I known that was coming. Honestly, that was not my plan. But I do love that song. Wow. Okay, note to self. From now on, walk-up music. <laughs> hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Thanks for coming. Um, welcome to our final weekend, the conclusion of our spiritual warfare series. I hope you guys have been enjoying it. I hope that we have taken some of the, some of the mystery, like Pastor Gabe said, or the weirdness out of spiritual warfare and just kind of illuminated the fact that it's, it's a real thing. It's a real thing that, as Christians, we all go through. In fact, if you've paid attention to the whole series, you see that at virtually every turn, for all the way from Genesis until now, the enemy has been out to spoil the plans of God. God had a perfect plan. He knew what he wanted for us. He wanted to bless us. He wanted the most full and abundant life and, above all, fellowship with us. But the enemy came in and he spoiled that. So we, we see the weapons, we see the things that he's done at every turn. If you're new here or if you've missed any of our previous messages in this series or any of our messages, you can all always go back and you can catch them on our website, discovercommunity.church. Just listen to them through the website or we podcast on Google Play uh, and iTunes and you can catch them there. But try and listen to as much, especially in regards to spiritual warfare, as much of the series as you can. And I don't say that just because I'm like, hey, I want you to hear everything I have to say. But there's so much misinformation. There's so much incomplete information, and there's just so much lack of information um, that on spiritual warfare that the enemy uses those things. He uses that confusion or that incomplete or wrong information as a weapon against us. So many times I see people with, with a completely wrong understanding of how spiritual warfare works, and that leaves us vulnerable. And that's the last thing that I want. And that's where my heart to do this series on spiritual warfare came from. So listen to as many of them as you can. So again, we've spent, this is our ninth week that we've spent, and we could have, got, we could have doubled or tripled that easily and still not covered the depth of it. And I said this last week, but it, it still reigns true. If you take... If you take the Word of God here in my extra thick super spiritual pastor Bible, if you, if you eliminated every verse in here that has to do with spiritual warfare, you'd largely just have a pamphlet because everything, again, from Genesis to Revelation is all about spiritual warfare. And so we need to be aware. But here's the problem. Even though we know what the Word says, again, 1 Peter 5.8 be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That someone is you and your family and your loved ones and everybody that you have ever known. They're in the enemy's crosshair. And so even though we know that, and we've spent all this time studying the different aspects of spiritual warfare, it's easy to get carried away. It's easy to tip that pendulum too far, to swing that pendulum too far in the other direction to where we focus too much. It's easy to happen. It, it happens to people all the time. <laughs> Love that. All kinds of sound effects. I need to time it better, though. It's easy to get carried away. We've talked about, so we've talked about uh, who the enemy is. 
angels and demons and their origin. We've talked about um, the weapons that they use, their tactics, all these sorts of things. And with all that focus, our eyes can shift off of the creator, off of our savior, and onto the created. Off of our victory and onto the battle. And that's not where, as Christians, that's not where we should live. But Scripture also tells us that we're not to be ignorant. We can't just bury our heads in the sand and pretend that there isn't a battle. We have to be aware of that. Ephesians 4.18, it's the first scripture I've got up here. They are, as my emphasis added, they are being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. We can't just pretend it doesn't exist. Hosea says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Okay, that's going all the way back. And then the, the um, great theologian Wayne Gretzky, I'll paraphrase him. <laughs> My paraphrase says, you will lose 100% of the battles that you don't know you're in. Again, so with all that, if you don't know you're in a battle, you're going to lose the battle. We can't be destroyed for lack of knowledge. We have to be aware but again, like anything that we do in life, moderation can be key. Too much, too much emphasis takes our eyes off of the Savior. And in fact, in many cases, the fight itself can become an idol. And we're cautioned over and over again to not place any idols above God. Well, we think, okay, how am I going to idolize a fight? Really, anything that we put our focus on above God can become an idol. Whether that thing is Bronco games or whether that thing is your job or whether that thing, in this case, it would be something that few people would tell you, hey, don't focus on that. If you say, I'm focused on spiritual warfare, I'm focused on the battle. Not many people are gonna tell you that it's wrong to think that way, so it's easy to go too far. So where's our balance? We need to find that balance. C.S. Lewis, and I quoted this in one of my very first messages in this series. C.S. Lewis, not a theologian, but a a Christian author and and a, a very wise man, said this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Meaning either way, the enemy is happy for you just to pretend and and ignore him like he doesn't exist, and he's just as happy to have us give him all the power in the world, placing him on equal footing with God. That's what he wanted all along, was to be on equal footing with God. And he is more than happy to let us ascribe all kinds of power and authority to him. Not everything that happens in our lives is because of the devil. Some are a result of bad choices. Some are just things that happen. And life does just happen to us. Not everything is led by the devil. So again, we have to find that Balance. So when you're looking for a balance in this, how are you to be aware that there is an enemy 
And there are demon armies, and they are prowling, looking for someone to devour. They're looking for a weak spot in your armor, trying to get at you. How do you balance that with, I have a Savior who already won it all. I have a Savior in Jesus who won this war a long time ago. There's still battles going on, but the war is won, and we know that as we go into the series on Revelation next We're going to find out much more about that. But we know it's true. Where's the balance? The balance, I believe, is if we fix our eyes on Jesus first. If our eyes are on Jesus first and foremost, I think we'll find that balance easier to maintain. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith knowing everything that he has done for us, fix our eyes on him. If we do that first and foremost, I think that'll free us from a lot of this encumbrance that they're talking about here. So as we conclude this series on spiritual warfare and we segue into the next series on the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we fix our eyes on Jesus and his grace and his mercy and above all else, his victory. So for the rest of this message, we're going to focus on the victory of Jesus Christ over the forces of evil. Now here's a preview scripture of what Revelation teaches about the victory of Jesus. This is Revelation 12, verses 10 to 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, and he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Verse 11 there, they overcame him with what? The blood of the Lamb. Did we do anything to make that happen? The blood of the lamb was freely shed for us. What's our part in this? The word of their testimony. That's our part in overcoming the devil, in winning the final battle that we will go into in Revelation. Our part, the blood of the lamb has been done. That's been shed for you. That victory has been gained. Our job is to speak of it. Tell each other about it. Speak openly about it. Tell others. That is the word of our testimony that spreads the power of Jesus Christ throughout the world. That's our part. So in this final battle, it's been won. We still have a role to play. Our testimonies are a big part of that. And if I can avoid talking too much, we're going to have some space for testimonies at the end of this service. So if you've got something, a way that that Christ has given you victory, over something that the enemy has thrown at you. Start thinking about that. I would love to hear some testimonies at the end of this.
But so like the blood of the Passover lamb, the blood of Christ was shed for us and rescued us from certain destruction because that's the path that we were on. Without Christ, we were all destined for destruction, but the blood of Christ has saved us for that. And that alone should be enough. But in order to really fully understand the magnitude of the salvation and the rescue that Jesus accomplished for us, we need to understand the fullness of what that means. The fullness of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. Right, because when you think of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, when you think about what he accomplished, what do you think of? So here, I'll, I'll throw it out to you guys. If you think of what did Jesus accomplish for us on the cross? Freedom, Freedom rescue, what a, eternal life. What else? Atonement, yes. Hope, good. These are all great things. And atonement, yes, atonement is accurate. But what does that mean? That's kind of a bigger, that's a bigger picture. That is something, believe it or not, the atoning work of Jesus Christ is something that the enemy uses to cause division and to cause strife and to cause church splits and to cause otherwise gifted, anointed pastors to get in arguments with each other about who's teaching the right way. The enemy uses all these things. He's smart. So when we talk about atonement, most Christians would ascribe to the fact that, that Jesus on the cross is a, is a story of substitutionary atonement. Okay, meaning Jesus Christ died for us. In fact, Webster's, the dictionary, describes atonement like this, reparation for an offense or injury or a satisfaction of a debt. Okay, so that kind of encompasses all the things that we just talked about. And all of them are accurate, but you still get some dissension. There's still room for the enemy to come in, and I want to talk about that just a little bit. When we look at some theories of atonement, a little theology lesson for you here this morning. There are a dozen theories of atonement out there, okay? If you just put them under the heading of atonement, dozens of theories. There is the penal substitution theory, which just argues that Christ was was punished in place of sinners, okay? There was a price to be paid. He paid it. There's the ransom theory that teaches that the death of Christ actually paid a ransom to the devil, that the, ransom, that the devil was somehow owed that, had captured Christ, and a ransom for us was what was paid there. There's the recapitulation theory, which is a big word, but it means that Christ is the new Adam. Whereas Adam failed, Christ is going to succeed, and he's going to lead us into that righteous, sinless life that he had. There is the moral influence theory, which really focuses on changing our perception of God. So we talked about strongholds last week where a stronghold can be that your perception of who God is can be off. Meaning you see him as angry, you see him as judgmental, you see him as disappointed in you. And that theory says that he gave Christ as essentially as a sign to change our hearts, that he's not angry. 
Scripture says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for you. If that doesn't change your mind that he's not angry at you, I don't know what will. So that's, uh, all these theories are valid theories. But the one I want to focus on is one that tends to cause a lot of misunderstanding. And that is a theory called Christus Victor. It's a, it's a Latin word for Christ the Victor. Sometimes you'll hear this in context with saying, oh, that person's theology is off because that's what they teach. What it simply means is that Christ gained a victory over the schemes of the devil for us. Okay, but you hear people taking it to the extreme, meaning, meaning that absolves you of your part in sin. Okay, if you take it to the extreme, it says, it's all the devil's fault, you're just a victim. And we are victims to our sinful nature, but we are not made to do anything. So taken to that extreme, it can be wrong. But we want to look at this in terms of, of what Christ did for us and his victory. And that's what we're going to look at here. So we're going to look at Christus Victor in terms of the victory that Christ gained for us. Okay, and again, these are all theories. They're all valid theories. What's the problem with all of them? Anybody see an immediate problem with all these theories? Andrew. That is true. Here's what I'm going for, though. I like setting you guys up to like, wrong. No. No. It's, and that's not wrong. That is accurate. However, here's the thing. They all attempt to put God in a box. They all attempt to take the atoning work of Jesus Christ and what he has done and a loving father, the sovereign creator of the heavens and earth and all that ever was and all that ever will be and say, let's put a label on him and let's tuck him down here on the shelf so that we can study him from that angle. And it excludes all the other things. How many believe that God is big enough to use the atoning work of Jesus Christ in all those areas and more that we may not even know about. Amen for sure. God is so much bigger than any label that we can put on him. So let's don't put a label on our theology. It's so limiting and it's such a tool that the enemy can use to divide us and to cause us to focus on fine arguments between the subtleties of one or the other, rather than keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is where we should be. Now, despite all the various subtleties, if we look at Jesus' atoning work on the cross, okay, now there's, here's another term for you, Calvinist. Some people hear Calvinist and they go, oh, he's not a Calvinist, is he? Okay, you can argue that back and forth all day long also. However, John Calvin was a brilliant man, a brilliant theologian. And he said this about 500 years ago. He described the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in this way. He says, finally, since as God only he could not suffer, and as man only could not overcome death, he united the human nature with the divine that he might subject the weakness of the one to death 
and as an atonement of sin and, and by the power of the other maintaining a struggle with death might gain us victory. Those, therefore, who rob Christ of divinity or humanity either distract from his majesty and glory or obscure his goodness. That, to me, is a pretty good picture. Gaining the victory, and Scripture actually supports Calvin's statement. Hebrews chapter 2, 14, 15 says, Therefore, since, since the children of the... Sorry. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, in case you're wondering, and might free those who from the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ came to defeat the devil. That's what he came for in all of his attacks and of all of the facets of the attacks that the devil uses on us. If we go all the way back to the very first, who knows what the very first Christian sermon ever taught was and who taught it? John, I'm going to have to ask you to stop answering because you're always right and you're always fast. We have to build some tension. We have to build some... You're absolutely right. It was Peter. Peter taught this sermon. The very first Christian sermon, if you want to call it that, was immediately after Pentecost. Okay, and Peter turned to the other disciples, and he said this. This is Acts 2, uh, 32, 35. This is, this is Luke's account of what happened there. And Peter says this, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, meaning the Holy Spirit that had just manifested in their midst. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, this is David saying this. Now in the NASB, the version I use, remember all caps is referring back to Old Testament scripture. David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the part I want you to focus on, that verse 35, until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. The very first sermon taught after the infill of the Holy Spirit that the disciples experienced at that first Pentecost, this is the emphasis that Peter chose. I will make your enemies a footstool at your feet. That says that this idea of Christ as victor over the schemes of the devil goes all the way back. This isn't a new invention. This isn't a new thing. This has been one of the central themes of the entire New Testament, if not the entire Bible. The New Testament itself, if we just focus there, has so much to say about this victory of Jesus. I'm going to read you just four quick ones that I love. First one, 1 John 3.8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And look at this. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Next one. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We were rescued. 
Colossians 2, 13, 15. When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our trespasses, having canceled the debt ascribed to us in the decrees that stood against us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That may be the single best scripture to describe the fullness of what Christ has done for us. And then the last one, Romans 8, 37, 39, the Apostle Paul writes this, but in all these things we overwhelmingly concur through him who loved us. Conquer, conquer, concur, we concur that this happened. But in all these things we over, rewind, edit. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Did he leave anything off that list? Is there anything in there, any, any loophole that maybe can separate us? I don't see anything. I don't see anything. I love that. I love that as a picture of what Jesus did for us. Through what Jesus did, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. That means nothing the devil can do, nothing you can do, because you fall on that list too. None of our mistakes, none of our hard-headedness, none of our stubbornness, nothing the world can throw against us, nothing the enemy can throw against us, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the one thing we have to do to participate in this? John, you answered again. I heard it, but you were, you were quiet. You were quiet. We have to believe. We have to confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that's our part. If we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, you have this authority. And nothing can separate you. Nothing can separate you. I want to take a second now. Does anybody have a testimony that they would like to share in a way that Jesus has helped them gain victory over the devil? Anyone? Last night it was crickets for several minutes. I got all night. I got... I got all afternoon. I got nothing planned until 4 o'clock, so we'll sit here. In the back. Good. All it takes is one, and then everybody else is. Okay. Hi. Um, my name is Emily, and I'm only sharing one thing that's happened. So a month ago, I got um, some prophetic words spoken, and... Um, The Lord's been really working in my life and blessing me. So, um, like, two days after um, I had the word spoken um, over my life, um, I had a friend over, and, um, I mean, this is kind of crazy, but um, I was actually muted, so I couldn't speak. So um, the devil was trying to fight me, and... 
I, all I could do was speak in the spirit, you know, and I was like, you, you belong down there and I, I belong up there and I can just feel my jaw just like tense up and my tongue, I just couldn't, um, like I couldn't speak, but I knew I can get out of it because I knew that the Lord would come through with me. So I have to like, you know, I have to trust him and he has shown me that, um, he makes everything possible for me, even when things are, they seem impossible. And I had, um, I, I have had other people speak to me and the Lord had showed them that he has a big plan for my life and I just need to trust him. So, Amen. thank you. Thank you. Who else? So, for those who know and probably seen our little boy John in the in the kids area, he's now seven years old. But this happened when he was about a month old. He was in the NICU for about three months total. Went through several surgeries. Well, one night, myself and and Nancy, we were. We went out to dinner. We were actually coming back to our little hotel room to get a good night's sleep and then you know, go back to the hospital in the morning. And the, the attending doctor in the NICU gives us a phone call with, in very polite terms, was trying to tell us that we needed to come back to the hospital because our son's about to die. And so, of course, we got back to our room. I, I, all I really truly remember about this is Texting our pastors at the point and texting our parents and basically saying, "Hey, we we need we need someone," and we broke down. We cried. We cried out to God. We cried out to you know absolutely everything we could think of. And the second we could actually physically get up, you know, we made our way to the hospital. And by Jesus's power and His his might, the doctor said, we have no idea what's going on. We don't know what happened, but he is now fully stable. He is, we, we know he's going to make it through the night. And I mean, it was flat out a miracle. This is one of those things that I have always taken my heart and confirms that not only is there a God, not only is there Jesus, and he cares and loves for us, but he fights our battles because the devil has tried to take him Three times now, and all three times, he has absolutely failed. Uh, amen. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Who else? Hi. This is the second time I've spoken in like a month and a half of coming here, so God's really doing something because I hate public speaking. <laughs> Um, so I'm Andrea, for those who I have not met. Um, in college, I studied abroad. Um, I went to Australia, and I, I didn't have much money in college, um, as most people probably don't. I left on the plane from LA with $70 in my bank account. Um, my mom was uh, gonna help me once I got there. And I just felt God tell me, I want you to trust me. 
I know what I'm doing. I won't leave you. Um, and from my flight from Chicago to LA, I sat across the aisle from a gentleman. And when I was standing in the line to get my bags rechecked to go across the ocean, he was in the same line as me. And I just was like, started a conversation with him. And he ended up working at YWAM. Um, in New Zealand, and so he was on my same exact flight from um, Chicago to LA as LA to Auckland. Um, and the, I don't know, the ticket eating, ticketing agent, um, she was like, are you guys traveling together? You guys aren't sitting next to each other. She rearranged our seats, we sat next to each other, we talked about um, God's plan for my life and his life, the whole pretty much trip we were that flight we were on besides sleeping. <laughs> um, and in the morning, he actually was like, so God has put it on my heart that I want to write you this check. Um, and so he wrote me a check for $500. Um, and that money actually made it a month and a half before my student loans could get dispersed into my bank account um, when I was in Sydney. So that's what I was waiting on was for the money to get put back from my loans that I borrowed. Um, so that made it the day before the money got into my bank account. Um, and so God really does provide. Amen. I've seen it. Amen. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Time for one more. If we have anybody with a burning, there we are. I wasn't going to do this, but orders from headquarters up above. Um, in 1997, I lived in uh, uh, Westminster, and uh, I was married at the time. We had two girls that were living with us. They weren't our children, but they were girls that we were taking care of. And uh, one morning, it was, this was uh, a normal day, I uh, was the last one to leave the house to go to work. And my then husband um, was already gone to, to uh, his business. And the girls were already gone to their jobs. I couldn't get out of bed. And I had a phone on the nightstand next to the bed. I reached for the phone and I called uh, Kaiser Permanente where my doctors were. They put me, the girl put me through to a doctor and he told me not to move, stay right there. And uh, he was sending an ambulance. He asked me if the front door was, uh, was unlocked, and I said, yes, I'm always the one that locks the door. So there was no problem there. And within just minutes, ambulance and the fire department was there. Took me downtown to St. Joseph's Hospital and put me in emergency and... They worked on me for probably four hours and weren't getting anywhere. And all of a sudden, I literally died. There was no life in me, and I was actually above my body. I could hear everything, but I couldn't feel anything or couldn't talk. One doctor on the left side of me was sticking pins underneath my fingernails trying to get a reaction. And two doctors were standing behind me, beating on my chest, and I couldn't feel any of it. And I just had perfect peace that God was taking care of it. And I 
it wasn't too long whenever the uh, doctor standing behind me said, she's coming back. It had to be the Lord. Satan's like a roaring lion going around seeking who he can devour. Yep. But he won't devour us if we walk with Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. That's awesome. And I'm sure that there's that there's a hundred more out there. God is so good to us. In times where you're on your knees and you are crying out in desperation, he's there and he's good and he comes through. Times when you have just a quiet prayer like, God, it would sure be nice if I had a little bit more money in my bank account. Things would be a little bit easier for me. He's good and he's there. He doesn't have this sliding scale of needs like, oh, you come to me when things are really bad and neither should we. We should always go to him because he is good. And those little battles that we fight and those big battles that we fight all matter to him. And we all have victory in those battles through Jesus Christ. Amen? And how many of you know that we should all be thankful that it's not reliant on our understanding of theology to gain access to the blessings and the victory of Jesus Christ. We can all stand here, sit here today, live our lives in the victory that Jesus Christ gained for us. And our only contribution is to say yes and to praise him at every turn. And so when you're desperate and you are crying out, praise him. And when you're sitting here saying, things are going pretty good. My life is, I'm definitely riding the wave right now. Praise him. And when the enemy comes at you and you can see it happening and you can stop it before he even gets his hooks in you, praise him. And when you're in the midst of a battle and you are getting beaten up right and left and your ship is rocking and it's taken on water, praise him in that. Because we know that he is good and we know that he will come through again and again and again and it is not dependent on whether we're smart enough or good enough or we pray enough or we go to church enough or we read our word enough. It's simply a matter of that do we love him enough to allow him to save us. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. So we're going to go into communion right now. The way we do it here is that we have self-serve stations at both crosses. There we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers, and you just dip the bread or the cracker in the juice. You can serve yourself or your family there. And then up front here, Gabe and I will have, we have wine and the bread and crackers in the same process up there if you would like us to serve you. I believe that every time we gather together, we are supposed to do this in remembrance of Jesus. So there's no rules on it, like you have to be a member or you have to do anything like that in order to celebrate communion. You simply have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You have to call him your Lord and Savior. And if you're here right now and maybe you're not sure if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, maybe you've never made that declaration, it's easy to do. It may be the hardest thing you've ever done because there's so much in the way. 
The enemy says, ah, it's not necessary. You're a good person. It's not necessary to go through all that. Or what are people going to say? Or you shouldn't do that. You're going to have to leave your former life behind. You're going to have to go home and burn all your music if you give your life to Christ. The enemy's going to make it very hard, but Jesus makes it very easy. The Apostle Paul says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, those are the two things that you have to do. You will be saved. Now, declaration with your mouth is a much bigger thing than we think of today. It's not something to be taken lightly. It is easy. But when that was written, that could be a death sentence. If you say those words out loud in the place and time that Paul originally wrote that and the wrong person heard, that was a death sentence for you. So it carries some gravity. Let's enter into this with an understanding of that gravity. And if you would like to declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior today and you've never done that, you can do that. If you have the urge to say it, you already believe in your heart. Say it out loud. You can turn say it to the person next to you. You can say it now. You can go in the back. We have a prayer team back there. They would love to help you, help you get that declaration out. It's not a certain combination of words. Just say it. And then, let's all celebrate communion together. So the worship team is going to play on, and you can, whenever you are ready, you can begin moving around and take communion. We'll have a couple songs, and then they'll dismiss. Thank you, church.
I love the picture of that song. One of the things that uh, Todd and I went out yesterday after service, and uh, he painted this picture for me about, you know, we come to God's throne, and uh, sometimes we just picture it as God's just sitting there on the throne, but he doesn't just sit there on the throne. When we make a move towards him, he jumps down off the throne and he runs toward us. He loves us with abandon, and that's the picture of reckless love. It's not that God is a reckless God. It's that he pursues us so unrelentlessly, or so relentlessly, that uh, he just wants to wrap his arms around us and love on us. And that's the cool God that we serve. share this last night and I feel like I want to share it today too just along with what Pastor Jack just said take that into your heart nothing can separate you from the love of God but the Lord had shown me last night that there are people in our congregation or people who've gone through this amazing series that Pastor Bob has taught on spiritual warfare and it's all around us and we know it's all around us and it's been an amazing teaching but the Lord was showing me that there are people who have been in this series and listening to it and you're frustrated or you feel like you're just not getting it. And the enemy is saying, well, you don't get it, but everybody else gets it. And so he's shaming you. And I want to tell you tonight, I, just, I feel like the Lord just wants to encourage you and say, nothing, if you've accepted Christ into your life as, as Savior and Lord, and nothing can snatch you out of God's hands. And the enemy is trying to make you believe because you're not grasping all of this stuff that you're somehow in. Um, insufficient and that's the word I got today from somebody I was talking with is that, is that word insufficient well the scripture says that Christ is our sufficiency right there is nothing sufficient in us you know to to hold on to God and there was a time back uh, a long time ago when I was in this dark place and I remember just telling people I just feel like I'm just holding on, hanging ten, holding everything I can to hold on to God. And the Lord had spoken to my heart. I, I don't know if it was a prophetic word or just spoken to my heart, but he said, oh, my son, you're never holding on to me. I've always held on to you. So just take that with you as you go today and go back over these messages and listen to them with that heart, with that spirit, and God will reveal to you what you need to know. <laughs> 